couple of the men in the church that are part of the men's Bible study asked if they could ask questions during the sermon. <laughs> I think uh, that points out very clearly that I'm no Jesus. <laughs> if I was, they wouldn't ask the questions, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, the first thing is that some of you, I think, are probably relieved uh, because the book of Hebrews is finished. <laughs> um, and you're thinking, now Pastor Steve won't preach long sermons anymore. And, uh, and that is the goal. That is the goal. Um, but like I've learned early in my life, don't make promises that you can't keep for sure. So uh, that, that, that will be the goal. So love your neighbor. That's our theme today. Love your neighbor. So what is meant by this word love? I... Uh, <laughs> found some quotes uh, from some children when they were asked what love means. And I thought some of these were kind of cute. Uh, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore, so my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Yeah, you can ooh. When someone loves you the way they say your name is different, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Isn't that sweet? Love is what makes, this is Terry, age four, love is what makes you smile when you're tired. And from Danny, age seven, love is when mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure it tastes okay. <laughs> Love is when you kiss all the time. Then when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together and you talk more. My mommy and daddy are like that. <laughs> they look gross when they kiss. <laughs> That's from Emily, age eight. Um, Bobby, age seven, I love this one. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas when you stop opening presents and listen. Isn't that great? And um, from Nika, age six, if you want to learn love better, you should start with a friend you hate. A six-year-old. Uh, Noel, age seven, said, love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt and he wears it every day. <laughs> <laughs> So those are some children's responses to the question of what is love. In the Greek New Testament, there are four words that are used for love. Um, one refers to sexual love, one refers to family love, one refers to um, brotherly love, and one refers to God's divine love. And the word we have today that Jesus uses is a verb that is taken from that divine love, agape. Agape is a love that, that God has for his son. That's how we get the first picture of this love. It's the kind of love God has for his son, Jesus. It's an unconditional love. It's a sacrificial love. The love that is this kind of love is revealed only in Jesus. 
You give this love away to others, even though they may not return it back to you. Jesus has been questioned in a series of encounters with priests, probably the Herodian priests from the temple. And then after that, the Pharisees. And then after the Pharisees and the priests, he was questioned by the Sadducees. All of these groups are trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to catch him so that they can have some piece of evidence to take to their courts and to have him tried. So when the scribe comes up to Jesus and asks him this question, what is the greatest of all the commandments? What's interesting is that this scribe, religious leader, doesn't seem to have any malice towards Jesus. If anything, he's curious about Jesus. And so he asks this question expecting to hear a true answer. In his response to this question, Jesus does something for us. He shows his He shows us his faithfulness to the law, to the Torah, as well as to his role as God's son. Jesus did not come to wipe away the law, to get rid of the Torah. He has told us that he came to fulfill it. And today's teaching gives us some more insight as to how He was planning to fulfill it. His response, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's straight from the Shema, which is a prayer that's taken from Deuteronomy 6. It's a prayer that Jews would have prayed in Jesus' day once, maybe if not once, at least twice a day. And so this Shema is not just prayed, but it is sung. Shema, Israel, listen, Israel. Listen, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. Monotheism here. The Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your might. And then Jesus adds a second law, which is taken from Leviticus. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus is doing here, he is not picking out the two most important laws out of the 613. He's not doing that. What he is doing here is he is describing the Torah, those 613 laws, by highlighting these two as a summation of the whole Torah, the whole law, the whole teaching. If you wanted to know what the Torah was about, then Jesus said, these two laws will explain it to you. We know this because this has been a central point of his teaching. When he was healing, on occasion, we have heard stories, right away his first healing in Mark, that he healed on the Sabbath day. 
And that was against the law. That was against their interpretation of the law that, that you should not be healing on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for the rest of the, of the believers so that you should rest on the Sabbath. And you shouldn't do things like heal people. You could do that on Sunday. Remember, their Sabbath is Saturday. You can do that on Sunday. What Jesus seems to be teaching us here is that it's not about the law. It's not about the Torah. It's about the spirit of the Torah. It's the spirit of the law. Because Jesus' response to the religious leaders about healing on the Sabbath was, the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. What Jesus is trying to tell us here is that man is not enslaved to the Sabbath. The Sabbath is given to us so that we might be able to use the Sabbath as a way to fulfill the law, the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. And so we also have in Mark chapter 7, a story of a dispute with Jesus and some of the Pharisees, some of the leaders. And the dispute is um, over how they are to interpret um, the, the teachings of the law. And, and so what Jesus challenges them on, because up, they're upset that he's not fulfilling their traditions of the law. One of the traditions was the ritual cleansing of your hands. Apparently he and his disciples didn't do that at least once of the, one of the times that they observed and so they were upset with that. And, and so Jesus' response to them is about their traditions. He says, there is a law that says you are to honor your mother and your father. We all know that as the fourth commandment. That's probably one of the top ones, right? And so Jesus says, but, but you have a tradition that says that you can pay a Corban, C-O-R-B-A-N, translated, the Hebrew word means gift. You can pay a gift to the temple, and then you'll waive any responsibility that you have to care for your parents. Now remember, honoring your mother and your father meant in their old age, you helped care for them. You were their social security. So when they got older, you took responsibility for caring for your parents financially. But they had a tradition that said you could give that money to the priests in the temple instead of your parents, and they wouldn't make you do anything for your parents. That's the spirit of the law that Jesus is attacking. The way you're using the law is benefiting the, the priests in the temple. It does nothing to honor your father and your mother. And yet you say that that's okay. So Jesus' response seems to be not so much about two laws as how we use the law, how we use the Torah. Jesus began telling us 
about the spirit of the law and how it begins with love. Love for the Lord our God. But, but our love for God, our love for God is a response. It is a response to God's love which has already been given to us. You see, we, we could not love God if we didn't experience God's love for us. The gift of love begins with God. And so what Jesus is telling us here is that the Shema is a prayer. And this prayer, everyone knew. And it's a prayer that comes out of Scripture. But it always begins with God's love for us. So we can love the Lord our God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. We can love the Lord our God. But if we have not listened to God's love for us, it may be difficult. First John, John writes about this in 1 John chapter 4 when he says this in verses 9 through 11. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we ought to surely love one another. That is agape love. That's a love that begins with God. And it's a love that empowers us to love God back. It's freely given. And not only is it freely given, it's freely given without any expectations of return. That's how amazing God is. That's how phenomenal God's love is for us. It's that God gives us this love without expecting anything in return. This is why we can love God. Because God first loved us. Then Jesus tells us that the spirit of God's law is not only just to love God, but to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the early church said this, if you didn't love your neighbor, then you probably didn't love God. In, uh, back in 1 John again, second chapter, verses 9 through 11, John writes this, If anyone claims I am living in the light but hates a brother or a sister, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves another brother or sister is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates mother, brother, or sister is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know his way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. So when we love our neighbor, we do so because we love from the light. The light is the love that we receive from God. The light is the love that we acknowledge from God. So the next question that comes along in this is, who is my neighbor? Who was Jesus' neighbor? Israel had two connotations or two definitions of, of, this, 
uh, word for neighbor, Ger Torshav, they said that resident aliens were neighbors and some said that foreigners were neighbors. Most said that resident aliens were, na- were neighbors. So what's the difference between a resident alien and a foreigner? Resident aliens were Gentiles who lived in Israel. They did not convert. They were not Jews. But they agreed to respect the Torah, the laws of the land. And so as alien residents, they were given the same rights as Jews as being able to live in the land. And um, because of their acceptance of the law, they agreed to be judged by the law as well. And so resident aliens was one status. The second status um, in Israel was foreigners or strangers. And these were strangers from other lands, other nations, other tribes. And they usually came to Israel to do business or to work in the land. Uh, maybe they were seasonal workers, but they, they would not accept any of Israel's traditions or laws. And so there was a, there was a lot of disagreement over this definition. You know, and I'm glad that we've all got it figured out in this day and age. Uh, but there was a lot of disagreement over the definition. And um, what they said was it was commonly understood that when the rabbi referred to the neighbor, they were referring only to the resident aliens. And the problem with that might be that's a legal interpretation but is, is that the spirit of the law interpretation? So we have no record that Jesus ever articulated a particular view about this, uh, this uh, understanding of the foreigner, but we do have some teachings that he shared with us that I think can give us some insight according to the spirit of the law. In Luke chapter 10, do you remember the story about the Good Samaritan? There was a Jewish man who was traveling down the road and he was beaten by robbers. He was robbed and left for dead. He was beaten so badly. And so there's a priest from from Jerusalem who walks by. This is on the road to Jericho, a very um, familiar road, but a very dangerous road. And so on this road to Jericho, there's a priest from the temple who walks by. He sees the man. The man is bloodied and he is clean for temple worship and he doesn't want to get unclean so he avoids the man he walks on the other side of the road and then there's a Levite he is a temple worker and he comes by and he does the same thing he does not want to become unclean and he walks along the other side of the road and he avoids the man Then there's a Samaritan who comes. Now the Samaritans, they were kind of like the worst foreigner that you could imagine. Because these were former Israelites, the northern kingdom. But they had had betrayed God when they broke off into their own kingdom, according to Judah, the southern kingdom. Not only had they betrayed God, but they had intermarried with all kinds of corrupt People like Assyrians and Persians and, you know, you name it. They were, 
It was a mess. They had no sense of God. And so these were (laughs) some of the most despised foreigners of all. And it's a Samaritan who sees the man, kneels down, and tends to his wounds. Picks him up, takes him to an inn where they will continue to care for him. And he promises to pay them in full on his return back from Jericho. This Samaritan showed us what a foreigner looks like. And Jesus' depiction of him highlights that in this particular parable that Jesus shares, the foreigner is more faithful to the Torah, the spirit of the law, than the Jews are. In Matthew 25, we have another parable that Jesus shares with us. And um, this is about, um, you know, who is prepared to encounter God. And uh, it's uh, verse 34 is where I want to begin here, if I can find it. Then when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as shepherds separate the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left hand. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. This is God speaking, remember? I was a stranger, also translated, I was a foreigner, and you welcomed me. I was without clothing, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will say, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you water, or a stranger and show you hospitality? Or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say this. I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. So Jesus doesn't explicitly say that foreigners are included in the understanding of the neighbor. But I think we get from his teaching the spirit of the law. And that is that God's love is intended for everyone. So just how are we supposed to do this, this love stuff? Well, I I think Jesus gives us a little more insight into how we are to love our neighbor when he teaches about how we are also to love our enemies. Can we limit the parameters of God's teaching about loving our neighbor? I mean, do we have to love every immigrant, every person? Aren't there some we can ignore? 
Can't we hate some? I mean, some, we can come up with justifications for it, right? The Facebook papers that were released over the last couple of weeks have been quite revealing, at least the little bits that I've been reading about. These Facebook papers have revealed some ugly truths about not just this social media company, but all social media companies. What they have revealed is that if you're a part of that, of that social media um, partnership, um, you indicate your partnership by clicking likes. And when you click likes, it is supposed to amplify exponentially what you have liked. But what the Facebook papers have revealed is that they didn't do that equally. What they did was that if you liked something that was positive, they didn't amplify it. But if you amplified, or if you liked something that was something you disagreed with, something that you hated, something that irritated you, that frustrates you, they amplified that exponentially. They follow your likes and they amplify them, but only the ones that border on disagreement and hate. If you like something positive, they didn't amplify it because that won't bring them any financial growth. You see, that's the bottom line. This is why they set the company up this way, according to the papers, because it is the most profitable way for them to make a lot of money and to make a lot of money fast. When we click likes on things that are divisive, that are hateful, that are angering, when we like that stuff, we are actually funding hate. This is how the owners of these companies make so much money off of us. When we click the things that we are against, politicians, vaccines, culture wars, we're just adding to their power and to their financial growth. And it comes at the cost of dividing us as a nation. You might be saying, but the things that I hate on social media are wrong. They're immoral. They're unjust. And that is most likely true. But one of the things that Jesus teaches us is that it's not wrong to be against something that's immoral or unjust. But how we go about it, that's the key to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. How do we handle it? Do we love those whom we disagree with? Do we respectfully disagree or do we just like to click the hate button? 
So how do we love people that are our enemies? Well, Jesus tells us to love our enemies by praying for them. Pray for those who hate you, he said. Pray for those who persecute you. We have a most powerful weapon that has been given to us, and that is the gift of prayer. And so we are called to pray even for, especially for, those we disagree with, those whom we don't like, even those whom we love to hate. The Bible also tells us to bless them. (laughs) To bless those people who we don't agree with, that we want to dislike. Instead of hating them, what would it look like to pray for them and to bless them? You love your enemy when you Bless them when you pray for them, when you do good to them, and you expect nothing in return. Loving your enemy means to trust, not in the power of hate. It means to trust, not in the power of vengeance, but to trust in the power of love. Agape love, divine love, God's love. To trust in that power. I probably told you this story a few times, but it is one of those stories that rocked my world. Is when I used to go into East Germany, and one of the places that we went to visit was a clinic, a hospital medical clinic. The East Germans, when they were behind the wall, you had to make a decision in eighth grade whether you were going to be confirmed in the church as a f- person of faith in God, or you would confirm your faith in the Communist Party. And so you had to make a choice in eighth grade, and that choice also delineated your future. So your future, if you chose faith, was that your schooling was done. You went to work, and you apprenticed and learned a trade or became a factory worker, and that was your life. If you pledged your faith to the Communist Party, then you could do anything. So what the Christians did was that they knew two things vocationally. They knew how to preach and pastor, and they knew how to take care of the sick because they'd been nurses and doctors. And so they didn't have any formal institutions, and they cre- so they created these informal ones. What they did was they, they trained people to be nurses and doctors. And they trained people to be pastors and preachers. And so the churches had pastors. They created little medical clinics and hospitals that were separate from the East German system where Christians could go to for care because as a Christian you might not get the best care at a state-sponsored hospital. What they did then was something that was remarkable. These Christians, pastors, and hospital director at this clinic outside of Dresden in East Germany. When the wall fell 
I don't know if you remember this, the dictator was Eric Honecker. And Honecker was sick with cancer. And so he was um, allowed by the Germans to leave and to go to Chile. And so he, he went there to die. But the Chileans got tired of him. It was too much heat for them. So they sent him back. He was hoping that Russia would accept him and his wife, but the Soviets were falling apart, and they wouldn't accept him. And so the director of this little hospital and the chaplain, the pastor, they concocted this harebrained idea. The man who had persecuted them all for their whole lives, they said, why don't we show God's love to him and his wife? So they offered to have them come and to live with them. So the hospital director made room in their house, and Eric Honecker and his wife came and moved in. They remained there in spite of the death threats from Christians against the director, in spite of the bomb threats that were phoned in to the hospital. They demonstrated agape love, divine love. That's the spirit of the law that Jesus is teaching us about. That's the spirit of the Torah. For us to get into the minutiae of how far we have to go, then we have left the realm of God's law. And God's love. And we have entered into our own personal judgments. What God has called us as Christians to do is to love one another. To love our neighbor. And to even love our enemies. All with agape love. Sacrificial and divine love. The good news here, friends, is that the reason we can even contemplate loving this way is because that's how God loves you and me. So we are recipients of this love. It has been given to us freely. It's yours. You can keep it or you can share it. It's up to you. Amen.